Tuesday, April 11th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with K. Sabil Rahman, Assistant Professor of Law, Brooklyn Law School, and author of Democracy Against Domination. The talk was titled, Democracy Against Domination, Power, Populism, and Resistance in the Era of Trump. Jane Mansbridge, Charles F. Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values at HKS, moderated. I am really delighted today to introduce K. Sabil Brahman, who is one of a species dear to my heart, a first-rate scholar who is also deeply involved in the world of practice. And you know, here at the Kennedy School, we pride ourselves a bit on nurturing this species, and I'm glad we have the opportunity to learn from Professor Roman today. Professor Roman, I wonder if it's okay to call you some. Yes, of course. <laughs> we, of course. He got his academic start here at Harvard, where he graduated summa cum laude, um, and then went on first to Oxford to pick up a couple of master's degrees, and then back to the Harvard Government Department, where he got his PhD. And he's now an assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, as well as a Schmidt Family Fellow at New America, and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, two important in addition to his writing, academic writing in the fields of law and political theory and political science, Sabil has also written for The Atlantic, The New Republic, Boston Review, Dissent, and The Nation. And in 2014-15, he served as special advisor on strategies for inclusive economic development in New York City. Um, and from 2015-16, served as a public member of the New York City Rent Guidelines Board. And here at the Ash Center, he helped direct the Gettysburg Project, which is an interdisciplinary initiative that works with community organizers, practitioners, and academics to develop new strategies for civic engagement and building civic capacity. That's our job. Those are the people, exactly the people we want to bring together. Now, Sabil's new book, Democracy and Domination, is just out from Oxford University Press. It's a really important analysis for us today as we confront the new forms of private power and increasing inequality that have undermined our democratic capacities to regulate the financial sector. So I know we'll hear a lot from them today. Uh, please join me in welcoming Sabine. He's not going to have a PowerPoint, so everybody will have to turn up their hearing. You know, it's funny. I, I like to say that it's a, it's a stance of principle, but really it's just I never have time to make a PowerPoint before I go into a talk. Um, so thank you, Jenny, uh, and thanks to the Ash Center, and especially uh, Melissa and Tim, uh, for helping organize this, and to all of you for coming. It's this particular pleasure for me to come back here and get to share uh, some thoughts from the book with all of you. My uh, The book literally got its start uh, just a few flights up, when I was a graduate fellow at the Center for Ethics, uh, beginning work on this project and working with several uh, folks who are here in the room today. So uh, this is a special, uh, a special treat for me to come back. So you know, the, the funny thing is, right? you write these books and they take so long to produce that um, you don't really know what turn politics is going to take uh, when you're working on them. And so uh, I can't say that I anticipated uh, what would happen in November uh, and since then, uh, not in a specific sense. 
but I do think that a lot of what we're experiencing at this moment in terms of the uh, what many of us see as a crisis of American democracy uh, has deep roots, deep uh, uh, historical, intellectual, um, and also so- sort of sociological uh, legal roots. Uh, and you know, one way to think about the, the Trump phenomenon or the rise of uh, or re- re- revival, I should say, of uh, a particular brand of right populism. Uh, you know, I think of this as a, as a kind of exclusionary populism, where uh, really what it's about is trying to uh, respond to some deeper questions that uh, many of us have about inequality, failure of democratic institutions, but with a uh, particularly radically exclusive idea of what democracy means. And on this view, democracy is... Uh, yes, it is for we the people, but the people only consist of one particular demographic, right? Uh, uh, excluding many communities of color, um, uh, turning back the clock on uh, issues of, of uh, inclusion and parity on, in a lot of respects. And uh, there's a story to there's a really important story to be told about the rise of that exclusionary populism on the right and what that has meant for the conservative movement. But in this book, I uh, tell what I think is important parallel story about what happened to liberalism. What is it about, uh, especially late 20th century liberalism, that uh, failed to address some of these deeper structural issues of inequality uh, and democratic failure? And so uh, we forget now, uh, given all that has happened in the last few years, uh, the financial crisis of eight, almost nine years ago. Uh, but I think in that, in that window, you can see a lot of these uh, failures of late 20th century liberalism laid bare, and that's really the starting point for for the book. So <clears throat> I want to start us off uh, flashing back to a couple years uh, ago, and uh, around this time in 2010, in April, uh, President Obama goes to the Cooper Union in New York, uh, right in downtown, and he gives this speech, uh, making the case, pitching his financial reform package. And now this is already a couple years into what was the worst uh, economic downturn since the Great Depression, uh, very much still with us today uh, in a lot of respects. And so if you picture this big, uh, uh, this big speech, make or break speech, you've got uh, Obama up front, all of the CEOs of all the major Wall Street firms seated in the front row. And it's to them that he is making his pitch, right? Now, outside, you have a pretty big crowd of protesters uh, protesting those very same CEOs or calling for their heads. Uh, and inside, Obama makes his case. And you know, I don't want to suggest that this was a uh, watered-down uh, uh, proposal that he was offering. He got you know, the speech that laid out a bunch of uh, pretty serious regulatory ideas. But to me, what's interesting about the speech that's telling is the way Obama expressed the role of government in that moment. Uh, Obama framed the problem of the financial crisis as uh, really one of excessive risk that had accumulated in a financial sector that had outstripped the capacities of regulators at the Fed or the SEC to manage, to mine the store. And so this is what I call in the book a managerial view of liberalism. The idea here is that, uh, yes, we want government to conduct economic regulation. But on the one hand, the goal of government regulation is really just to optimize the market, right? to close market failures, to tinker around the edges. Uh, the means of government regulation is technocratic. It's uh, smart people in the Fed or the SEC who are insulated from politics who uh, will save us from 
from these, from these risks, from these problems. And that's a perfectly reasonable way to think about governance, and it has a long pedigree. In a lot of ways, we can think of Obama as sort of modern-day version of this strand of uh, New Deal liberalism that has its roots in Franklin Roosevelt and uh, his uh, New Deal uh, architects. So if you think of someone like James Landis uh, in the 30s, um, also was... Uh, uh, come out of uh, Harvard Law and um, goes on to be one of the architects of the SEC. And he, and he lays out in, in a bunch of his writings and speeches uh, this idea of the administrative process, the new regulatory state as the, tw- the modern-day solution to the failures of courts and the failures of legislatures. Right? Courts and legislatures don't have the expertise to handle a complex modern economy. They're too tied to old formalisms. They're too tied to party machines. And so what you need is new institutions that can harness expertise to serve the public good. So perfectly reasonable idea. What's, uh, what's different, though, I think, about uh, sort of late 20th century liberalism, we can talk more about this in the Q&A, there's, uh, by the time we get from Landis to Obama, two things have changed. Uh, first is that we've kind of seen the, the, the assault on this, the New Deal state from the right emerging in the late 70s, but really taking fire in the 80s and 90s. And so Obama-era liberalism has to account for, has to respond to a sort of loss of faith in that expertise, in that idea of publicly, the, uh, the public good served by uh, uh, the regulatory architects in, in Washington. The other thing that's changed, though, is that uh, in a lot of ways, the late 20th century liberalism sort of a- adopted the idea uh, coming out of conservative law and economics that the goal of economic policy was primarily to uh, fix the market. And it's more removed from uh, any sort of deeper moral critique of uh, what economic policy is for, what a good economy looks like. Uh, and that, what's important to me, I think, about that trajectory is that what's missing, what's lost. And what's lost is this much thicker, small-D democratic idea of what economic regulation, economic policy is supposed to be about. And for that, we see a better uh, articulation in the pre-New Deal period of the progressive and populist era. So the book uh, focuses a lot on this period. And I think that period is really instructive for us today because in in a lot of ways, um, many of the structural crises that we're in now were present then. So if you think 100 years ago or 120 years ago, the country is going through the upheavals of industrialization. This is radically changing the nature of the economy, the nature of work, uh, the nature of uh, cities and place. Um, and this is causing tremendous social dislocation. Right um, At the time, we also still have finance as uh, one of the main villains. But the, at, you know, for the progressives 100 years ago, it was J.P. Morgan the man, not the company. But still the same concerns about... Uh, the ways in which finance might be skewing the economy and uh, posing a threat to democratic institutions. Um, uh, And you also had a a similar sort of uh, disaffection or disillusion about existing democratic institutions, right? They were captured by party machines. They were not responsive to the public. Uh, So you have this combination of economic upheaval and political failure. And, and so what do you do? You're boxed in as a, as a community, as a society. What do you do in that situation? Uh, well, what's interesting to me about this period is you see a really fascinating explosion of uh, practice, reform, advocacy, uh, and intellectual thought trying to deal with this simultaneous crisis. 
Um, so on the one hand, you have uh, movements like the antitrust movement that zeroes in on the problem of private power. Um, and on the other hand, you have uh, uh, a focus on issues like uh, the sort of more diffuse structural power that is manifested in the market itself. So um, the legal realist movement gets its start during this period. Their whole critique is that private power isn't just big monopolies, big corporations. It's uh, the way we've set up the market economy. It's, it, it's in, hidden in the gears and the law and policy that makes, makes markets work. Uh, the American Economic Association gets founded during this time as a reformist uh, organization of economists, not a reactionary one. If you look at their mission statement, uh, it is all about responding to the ways in which the market has been set up uh, in terms that magnify inequality. So you have this critique of economic power, which is really powerful. It's very different from sort of our usual policy discussion about uh, efficiency or consumer welfare. Right? The, I, the problem is that there are actual actors and policies that concentrate power and restrict opportunity. The second piece of this critique is uh, response to the, the, the sense of political failure, political dysfunction that I, that I mentioned. And so here, if you think of someone like John Dewey, the philosopher who I uh, uh, use a lot in the book, and, and um, we can talk more about uh, the pluses and minuses of, uh, of Dewey's thought. But uh, in The Public and Its Problems, Dewey captures this problem really nicely, where he says that the big problem for the, the public in this moment is a sense of being caught up in the sweep of events, that we don't have control. We don't have any way of uh, asserting political agency. We don't have the institutions or, the, or, the, or even the narratives to make action possible. And how could action be possible when you're facing these enormous challenges, right? What can we do against JP Morgan uh, or the Vanderbilts? What can we do against the market, which is this diffuse system that seems beyond our ability to control, right? It is just in the ether. Uh, and so that's a, that, that then is a core problem of enabling collective political action. Uh, and so for Dewey and for a lot of other uh, thinkers in this vein, the answer was not just the critique of economic power, but building new modes of civic capacity. And so that meant new institutions, uh, new movements, and new language to capture all of this. Uh, and so then if you look at uh, someone like Louis Brandeis, who became a Supreme Court justice uh, and was one of the uh, leading uh, legal reform advocates during this time. Uh, Brandeis can be captured some of, this, some of these ideas trying to be worked out in practice. It's not that he had all the solutions and we want to copy those, but it's an example of bridging from this critique to uh, stuff you can do on the ground. So, for example, you can see this in Brandeis's defense of the trade union movement, uh, his defense of decentralization and federalism. If you, you, know, if you take an intro law school class now, you'll read some of those cases as sort of a generic reference for why federalism is, is an abstract value. But if you read the original cases for Brandeis, it wasn't federalism for federalism's sake. The reason he, he saw decentralization as critical to democracy is that at the local level, you could, it would be more plausible to experience and enable that collective action needed to tackle these vast economic forces. Uh, and so he, he dissents in a number of uh, opinions upholding state regulations against chain stores as a response to uh, the emerging sort of what was one of the emerging sort of corporate behemoths of the time, ANP. Uh, and he dissents to uphold uh, the creation of public utilities in areas like ice or, or milk or transportation as a way of uh, essentially the uh, 19th century and early 20th century version of the public option that we're talking about now with health with healthcare and Medicare for all. Uh, so. I think there are a lot of uh, important lessons from that, from that period. 
Um, and I think in a nutshell, then this indicates the, the argument for the book and the title. The title is Democracy Against Domination. And to me, this is the core of what progressive uh, social change is about. It's about identifying and targeting domination, the concentration of power that is beyond our ability to hold accountable. And, we do, and the way we respond to that is by expanding our civic capacities, our ability as a democratic society to hold that power accountable. Now, sometimes that means we can work through existing channels. But as with Dewey and Brandeis and the, and the thinkers in the progressive era, a lot of times it meant creating new institutions and new movements. And I think that's very much uh, apropos of where we are now. So um, I don't want to uh, go too much longer, but I just want to give a sense of where I see this connecting with the politics of the moment. And you know, I'm an, uh, there, there are many uh, overlapping uh, crises to focus on. Um, I'm an optimist at heart, so I, I like to see uh, some of the, the green shoots, right? What was that phrase? You kept saying green shoots after the uh, financial crisis. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, what, we, what we're seeing in the response to Trump and the Trump moment, uh, we're seeing the emergence, the beginnings of a similar kind of uh, deep rethinking about our political economy, the nature of economic power, and, the, and what it takes to have a vibrant democracy. So think about uh, movements like the Fight for 15 or the Movement for Net Neutrality, uh, to name just two quick examples. What's fascinating to me about these movements is a couple of things. First, the focus, the target, what they're trying to uh, respond to is explicitly a phrased in form of economic power. It is not just about uh, redistribution or welfare or uh, efficiency. It is about reallocating economic power from uh, kind of uh, modern corporations in the fight for 15, sort of the franchised workplace that keeps uh, worker wages down and worker mobility down, uh, or the, the private power of uh, Comcast and Verizon and telecoms to uh, put their thumb on the scale of what information you have access to and how. Uh, so the problem is very much in terms of power, domination. Second, the response is uh, partly through existing policy channels, but really dependent on building new movements, right? These are, uh, it's really at the interface between policy and movement organizing that these uh, movements are, are gaining traction, right? It's, so it's not, it's not one or the other. Fight for 15 can leverage its uh, organizing outside to make change in spaces uh, wherever it can get a hook, you know, at the city level, Seattle. Then that triggers something else, right? Same with uh, net neutrality. The FCC had never, was not prepared to, for the barrage of, uh, uh, of, of organizing and advocacy that they were subjected to. Uh, and I think, you know, if you talk to career folks there, it, it uh, freaked them out a little bit, right? And uh, um, we think of net neutrality as an Obama policy, but the Obama administration was against net neutrality when it all started. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a creative civic capacity building there. Um, and then the, the, the last piece there is um, uh, in terms of the language, the narrative, that these, uh, putting these two pieces together, the problem of power, the need to rebuild uh, democratic capacity, and that that is what progressive politics is about. It's not just about one issue or one constituency. These are uh, deep problems that connect us all, right, and that cut across many different sort of traditional issue silos. Um, so I want to uh, uh, close with just a uh, two quick quotes, which I, uh, they, they sort of bookend the, uh, the project, the the, the first is the epigraph on the first page, and the second is the quote at the, at the, at the end of the book. Um, so in 1871, uh, Walt Whitman writes in his Democratic Vistas uh, about the idea of democracy, and this is what he has to say. 
We have frequently printed the word democracy, yet it is a word the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened, notwithstanding the resonance and many angry tempests out of which its syllables have come from pen or tongue. It is a great word whose history remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. And then about 30 years later, Brandeis, speaking to the Filene's Cooperative in Boston, uh, in, uh, sort of supporting their, uh, uh, what he thinks this means for the labor movement, right, the shift to a, a cooperative uh, corporate structure, and he had this to say. 100 years ago, the civilized world did not believe that it was possible that the people could rule themselves. They did not believe that it was possible to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. America in the last century proved democracy is a success. The civilized world today believes that in the industrial world, self-government is impossible, that what we must adhere to the system that we have known as the monarchical system, the system of master and servant, or as, as it is more politely called, employer and employee. It rests with this century and perhaps with America to prove, as we have in the past, that uh, self-government is possible in the industrial world as well. So the, the ferment that I described in the Pibus and Progressive Era in a lot of ways made the New Deal possible. And there's a story to be told about the way in which, since the New Deal, we have lost a lot of that, uh, a lot of that moral and ethical core. Uh, whether we can sort of do a similar renewal in this moment, I think that's the real stake and that's the real opportunity to set up uh, the next several decades. So I'll stop there. your wonderful book and uh yeah it's uh i highly recommend it uh it's not only is it a, a really exciting uh argument about democratic potentials in the moment we inhabit uh and i so I, I i do think that it's very very timely it's also really beautifully written so very clearly written and uh yeah i've really enjoyed reading it the question that um has been very much on my mind in my own work, but also in reading your book, is how we need to be thinking about democratic potentials in this political moment, attentive to these sort of economic structural conditions that we confront, which your book does yeah. a beautiful job of doing, and you're really helping us to get some insight on the relationship between democracy and technocracy, this yeah. inescapable dilemma that we have to find ways of resolving. Um, but also attentive to economic structures and their and their uh, their impact on our democratic institutions and processes. What I I don't see in the book, and I'd really love to hear your reflections on, is uh, that these structures are are global. They're they're transnational, and so the kind of democratic mobilization that you have described here is is fabulous and exciting, but it is still bounded uh, within the U.S. context. And so I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about the, uh, the transnational dimension of democratic possibilities, but um, also about the, the transnational structure of economic domination. So how can domestic mobilization address itself to uh, domination that is actually transnational in its structure? Right, that's that's great, and, and thank you for those kind words. Uh, so I'll have to get you to, to blurb the next uh, edition. I <laughs> um, uh, no, that's a great question, and, and it's it's one that that I get a lot, and I think about a lot too, because it's very much not in the book. I think that's right. Um, so the the funny thing about this is, you know, like 
come to these projects kind of randomly, right? So the, the, fir the first version of this project in my head was about global economic governance. Uh, and then the financial crisis hit and the Obama election happened in the same semester, the semester before I came here to the, to the Ethics Center, and I thought, okay, this, here is the ball game actually right now. Um, and I kind of shifted, got sucked into that, um, and never quite made it back uh, to where I started. Um, but there is a parallel story to be told here. Uh, and you know, so I'll say a couple of things. First is that um, uh, historically it's true that you know, if, you, if you think about you know, 20th century social democracy, especially as it gets started in the early part of the century, it's premised on a very different international economic and legal order, one that is premised on making space for domestic policies of the kinds that we're talking about. And, and that's clear even when you read early Keynes, right? When Keynes is talking about, there's a reason why sort of Keynes, the inspiration for many New Deal type policies was also the architect of Bretton Woods institutions the way they were in the first, in the first iteration. Now by the time you get to the end of the 20th century, that's changed. Uh, um, so, so it's not, and it's not clear sort of how we, I don't, I don't know if we can really put the genie back in the bottle, right? I think that's, that's the real worry, right? Um, but I do think that there's a, there's a, uh, a parallel story or, or project to be uh, told on the international arena, and it, it manifests in areas like um, the nuts and bolts of trade law, uh, the ways in which we structure uh, corporate governance for com companies that have multiple domiciles. Um, these are really in the weeds type uh, policy areas, but they have this deep moral, almost you might even call it con small c constitutional significance, and. And I think this is part of my, uh, uh, what I hope the takeaway is, is that we can't leave these types of topics just to a, a technical kind of policy uh, analysis, right? They're too important. And so we need to sort of find ways, in the same way that we want to sort of bridge the moral and the technical in areas like fi domestic financial reform, we need to do the same thing in trade policy, in, in international finance, um, in global governance, with, you know, in terms of future of the World Bank and the IMF and the WTO. Um, and there, there's some really interesting scholarship that I'm sort of becoming aware of that's in these spaces, but I, I totally agree that's, that's a, a next front line. And, and actually, the last thing I'll say is I think um, in some way, you know, the, the fact that uh, trade was such a big issue in the election and went the way it did has forced that reckoning in a way that um, I'm not sure that we, it would have happened but for the way that the election played out. Thanks. Um, I think about governance, democracy, and institutions um, at the local the local work that I do, which is urban revitalization and um, and city planning. Um, and there's a parallel that goes at the local level and and at the national and international yeah. level, which is the you know the the general suspicion of expertise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the TPP and how it was discussed and how it was presented is an interesting one because we were left on faith that these negotiations you should trust because it's going to be good for us. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and the, re the reaction to that both in the U.S. and in other places in the world was similar, and we see that at the local level. So some of it is, and you talked a bit about the narratives that need to be developed um, I'd be interested in how you see narratives as they relate to expertise and how the public, because you started with expertise, mm -hmm. with the New Deal. 
So if we need expertise, if we really do, if these things are really complicated, how do you bring expertise, but then how do you have narratives that help the public either understand, give the public a forum to push back against expertise, um, or at minimum be, be, be brought along? I don't know if you have some thoughts about that. Right. No, I, I, I think that's a great question, and, um, uh, and also sort of I'm, I'm also super interested in city planning, too, so I've, I'm kind of trying to keep both of those things in my head. Um, uh, on the, about the expertise point, uh, so I'd say a, cu a couple of things. I mean, first is that, it, you know, it's not that, it's not that we want to get rid of knowledge, right, or facts or uh, uh, expertise in that sense, um, but I think what I'm, what, what I'm worried about is the ways in which, especially in the last few decades, uh, many policy folks or kind of political, a lot of political discourse will use an appeal to expertise as a way to bypass or displace the heavy lifting of having that moral debate, right? The fact of, like, expertise and sort of facts on the ground don't answer, don't answer the moral question about, you know, so think about something like climate change, right? Yes, climate change is real. But the fact that climate change is real doesn't actually answer the moral question of how you weight succeeding generations, right? And so those are those are related but distinct questions. And in the and in economic policy, there's a similar problem, right? That that uh, an appeal to expertise is a way of bypassing really controversial moral questions about what a good economy looks like, winners and losers, who 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 they should be, right? Um, and so I think part of it is about uh, creating political space for us to have the moral argument in a way that uh, is related to but doesn't rise or fall uh, with how you know, the facts on the ground might be from, from expertise. Now, that's a big picture sort of uh, abstract idea. Where, where this becomes really concrete, I think, is in our structures of decision making. So in, uh, I teach at a law school. I teach administrative law, among other things. And uh, we have a legal institutional structure uh, you know, built on the Landis model of uh, prioritizing a certain mode of expert rationality in making policy decisions. So, you know, Congress passes the laws, yes, but Congress passes generally pretty vague, broad laws that are only really given meaning in a regulatory agency, the SEC or the EPA. Uh, and we have a structure for how those decisions are made, and that it is right now it is not a structure, I would argue, that enables that kind of uh, productive interaction between political, moral, democratic debate on the one hand and expert knowledge on the other. In, instead, I would argue most agencies are optimized to screen out political debate and to prioritize sort of technical rationality. Uh, so there's an institutional answer, too, I think, which would change a lot of how we do policy. In thinking about the role of experts, two answers have generally come up. One is the kind of Habermasian answer. Um, administrative agencies have usurped the legislative power of the state. What we need to do is, is, is kind of bring it back to the legislatures. That ha I don't think that's a feasible approach, but that's one. Another is to... Um, get the, uh, the administrative agencies themselves to become, quote-unquote, more democratic, post notice and comment uh, so that people can write in comments. 
even possibly, we have an expert on sortition here, even possibly commission randomized citizen groups to see. <coughs> As I think about it, none of those proposed reforms, and of course notice and comment is now legal, um, none of them deal with the getting the public to discuss the larger moral questions you're talking about. In other words, it's commissioning a random set of citizens to talk about some specific issues in the administrative law, not to talk about the larger policy questions. So um, in response to those two strands, I don't think either leads us particularly to where you want to go. So right. do you have an idea yeah, in response that's, to that? <coughs> that's a great question. Um, so I, I have some, th some thoughts. We'll see if they, if they, if they work, right? Um, so I think a big, a big part of it is that when we have the institutional design question, so, so, well, so first things first, I think I'm more in the, in the second camp of thinking about how do we democratize the regulatory process and the regulatory state. I, I, this is another one of those genies that you can't put back in the bottle, right? The administrative state is here to stay. Um, you know, our new Supreme Court justices' uh, uh, views on the matter notwithstanding, um, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, <coughs> so, we're in this, uh, so I'm in the second camp. <coughs> Excuse me. But I, I think it's true that uh, you only get so far if we're thinking purely in terms of institutional design. And, and to me, I think one of the uh, uh, takeaways from looking back at, at the history I described is that uh, real democratic power and capacity comes from the interface and interchange between movements and institutions. And, you, and you, we want to think about both sides of that equation in the same lens. So um, what does that mean? I think that uh, on, the, so on the one hand, it means that there's some things that you just need external to the institution for this broader uh, democratic conversation to happen. And so that means we need to think about what's going on in our civil society ecosystem. What's, what does it look like uh, in, in terms of the decline of mass parties, the transformation of grassroots uh, civic organizations, um, you know, lots of folks uh, in this building and, and elsewhere have written great things about that and are continuing to do so. So we need to bring that into the conversation. But the other thing is that we need to think about what are, what are those hooks and levers that, that connect movement organizing with institutions. So I'll give an example. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which to my mind is, is one of the real bright spots of the Dodd-Frank financial reform. Uh, but it, to me, it's a bright spot not just because of the subject matter. You know, I think it, yes, I think they do good work on student loans and, and uh, consumer credit and things like that. But what's really interesting to me about the CFPB is I think what you have there is an attempt to create an institution that leverages expertise, but that is very much embedded in a broader uh, civil society ecosystem of consumer rights, uh, consumer rights of racial justice of. Uh, of various other sort of economic inequality uh, movements. And so this, it, it, this happens in a couple of ways. One is that just by its very existence, the CFPB creates, makes it easier for us to tackle some of those diffuse uh, ethereal issues of economic policy because now there's a place where you can direct your argument. You can go to the CFPB if, you have, if we have concerns about some of this stuff. Without the CFPB, it's not even clear where you go. So how can you have civic action if you don't have a target? Uh, so, so that's the first uh, institutional point. The second institutional point is what I think of as hooks and levers. So once you know that where to go with your claim or argument or beef, uh, how do you plug in? Um, and in the day-to-day -day operations of the CFPB, 
what's interesting is they've set up a number of mechanisms to try to get at that. Now, I don't think it's entirely successful. Some of, some of them are more like the notice and comment model where it's very passive and receptive rather than proactive. Uh, but you have things like uh, ad, uh, advisory groups which have dedicated constituent representation, not by geography, but by, uh, uh, by uh, essentially issue constituency, right? Uh, student debtors, pensioners, uh, et cetera. Um, you have a whole division whose job is to set up and facilitate uh, grassroots meetings all around the country to figure out what is going on in those communities and what are the things the agency should focus on. And when you talk to those people, uh, this isn't in the statute, but those personnel are veteran organizers who have moved into government, and so they have an intuition about that interchange. That's a lot of soft stuff, right? It's not statutory, but those are the kinds of practices that we, I think, need to encourage to make the institutional design tweaks that we think of really have that broader effect. You know, I'm the director of research at the Tobin Project and uh, a longtime friend of Sabil. It's really delightful to be here. Many of John's, many of our coffees have made their way into this book. So I guess uh, as, a f as somebody else who thinks that the CFPB is a bright spot of Dodd-Frank and is really happy that it exists, I still want to push back on the example um, and in the terms of the example, like be, in part for things that, for reasons that you got to. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that a lot of what's most bright in the CFPB is not in the statute. Um, that it's about veteran organizers doing sorts of soft stuff that is good. And, um, and of course, in the statute, the CFPB is, is sort of like built to, to have maximal freedom within the broader institution that inhabits the, the Fed. Um, but it still has appointment by, by a president. And so I wonder whether, I mean, I think we can treat the CFPB uncontroversially as, as a positive thing and then wonder sort of what kind of positive thing it is. It might be that it has a certain sort of microstructure that the regulatory state ought to adapt and adopt. And if we just built our regulatory bodies in a better way, we could harness a certain kind of like or, or create a certain kind of democratic energy. But it might just be that there's some virtue to like um, administrative churn where when you have a big enough social movement to actually induce change in, in the sense that you get a new organic statute and something like that comes into being, you've got a movement that has people who care about something, who end up staffing something and building links between the federal government and a, a broader demographic of people than you sometimes get when, when a well-intentioned sort of agency that was created a long time ago endures for a while. So I think, I wonder how much the story of the CFPB uh, is recapitulated in, say, the early history of the SEC, but then maybe less so in the late history of the SEC. Um, and so I wonder how much of, you know, how much of the recipe for democracy against domination can lie in our uh, retooling the administrative state and how much of it that is just an, an impact of the, what's really driving things, which is some sort of, like, less, less well-understood structure of, uh, of mobilizing publics to shape their government. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think, um, I mean, it, it sort of goes to the tension that Jenny's question brought up, right, between um, sort of institutional design and sort of broader movements, transforma ideational transformation, right, and, and how do we think about that link. And, and I think that's, you know, there's no easy, easy answer there. Um, so I, I, I think I agree with, with both parts of your question, right, which is that there are some design pieces about the CFPB that are useful and replicable and that we can learn from. At the same time, it's not the case that if we just drop that into other agencies that we would magically transform 
you know, where we are politically. I think that's, that's totally right. Um, so, I mean, I think for me, this is, uh, uh, again, that, this idea of sort of keeping the, the, the broad movement challenge in our head at the same time as an institutional design challenge, right? I, and, and I'm a political theorist, right? I think uh, ideas matter for politics, and I, and I think that ideas drive and shape uh, uh, political outcomes. And so, you know, so part of the story of the CFPB isn't just a technical design. It's the fact that um, through figures like Elizabeth Warren and others, in, the, in those early, early years of the Dodd-Frank debate in 2009-2010, you had a sort of not full-scale, but a sort of medium-scale movement that was essentially about economic power, um, even, though it wasn't, even though it was phrased in consumer welfare terms. There's an interesting sort of sub-debate to be had there. Uh, but essentially, you had a, 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 a movement that was based on a critique of, uh, of economic power uh, to which the CFPB was one part of the solution. And you needed that movement to kind of give vitality and moral content to what the CFPB became. So I think that's totally right. And so to me, the other lesson then is not just the institutional design of CFPB, but that sort of broader movement from movements to policy change to ideational change, right? That, that trajectory. And so what's, what, part of what excites me about the possibilities of this current moment is I think that in a lot of ways, the election and the new cabinet and, um, and just the kind of ongoing uh, you know, pressure that people feel economically in a number of ways uh, has put on the table, sort of for the taking, these big picture questions in a way that they weren't on the table 10 years ago or even five years ago. So that is a window that doesn't come very often where we can build some of those movements where we can start to shift the ideological or intellectual terrain. And that's where I hope that sort of ideas like this can kind of help thicken that process. And then we'll see what, what that can help us do institutionally, right, policy-wise. Um, but you have, to, you have to build the, arg- the moral argument in public politics first in order to make possible the policy change later. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to figure out what policy changes we want. It's good to be prepared. Uh, but having the 10-point plan is not a substitute for um, doing that heavy spade work. I'm Jerry Frug. I teach at Harvard Law School. Uh, I wanted to focus on the words like we, us, yes. and the people. Uh, so there are deep divisions in the United States between Christian and Muslim and native and immigrant and white and black and gay and straight, and we could go on, we won't. Uh, and I'm interested in how these people, these divisions obviously were fostered and appealed to recently, and so we have to address them. And I'm interested in how we begin to do that, and as you know, uh, particularly in the organization of our cities and suburbs and neighborhoods, the way we organize uh, the differences among people on the spatial level. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, much of the book also owes uh, many of its thoughts to to coffees and lunches with Jerry too. Um, yeah, this this is something I've been thinking about a lot, especially you know over the last year. Um, and it's not as explicit a theme in the book itself. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one is that I think part of how the sort of deep structural power that I'm talking about, whether it's financial power or other forms of economic power, part of how 
that power is exercised and is problematic is in the way it uh, fragments and produces those uh, divisions of who counts as a member of the people or as a member of the community. Um, this, is, this is true in, in spatially. It's true uh, economically. Um, and so that's, that's part of how this power is, is experienced or is um, part of what we're, we're trying to push back against. I think um, the, the challenge is how do we build an um, intersectional or cross-constituency uh, shared sense of, uh, of we in opposition to these, um, these types of power. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting to see in that regard right now is um, if you kind of peer under the hood in the Fight for 15 or even in the Women's March from the other month, and you talk to a lot of the organizers involved in that, uh, you'll find people who are trying really hard and trying to be thoughtful about that question. And, and it's not easy. A lot of it is, is again, sort of really, um, it seems almost, uh, uh, it seems too small to be so impactful, but it really is. It's, you know, actually kind of building the, uh, the interpersonal connection between sort of leaders of uh, different constituencies where they're on the same page um, and, and able to coordinate I think the idea of economic power can help us in that regard because in, in some ways the, the, the power structure that, say, the Black Lives Matter movement is highlighting is, a, is, a, is very much the same power structure that uh, we see in the, in the problem of finance or in the problem of you know, corporate concentration or um, telecom concentration. It's not exactly the same, but it's, they're of a piece. And when you, when you look at the... Um, the policy platform that the Movement for Black Lives put together over the summer. Like, to me, what's really cool about that is you read that, and it, and it reads like something that you know, Dewey and Brandeis would recognize. It's all about how economic power is baked into the structure of our cities, the structure of our economy, the structure of our workplaces, and how that is what produces uh, racial capitalism, right? or racialized capitalism. So it's not exactly an, an, an uh, it's not a clear-cut answer, but I think that's that's where I would want to put more work, right? Put put more more pressure in building those um, cross-constituency diagnoses of domination, the way in which economic domination, racial domination, gender domination, different forms of domination are are overlapping, and then how can we build sort of uh, languages and movements that are similarly overlapping in response to that that problem? But if you so much of, of movement organizing is about getting the villain right, right? The way you define the villain that you're moving against shapes the, the we that you're mobilizing. Um, and, and I think we could get a long way further if we kind of have a better diagnosis of, the stru- of, the, of that structural villain. Yes, I'm Miles Rappaport. I'm the senior practice fellow here in American Democracy. And I was interested in your, in your bio that you're doing work in New York City. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the de Blasio administration. Because yeah. if ever there, it seems to me, if ever there was a political movement yeah. that translated itself into governing power, you know, all the, many of his aides are former organizers yeah. of one movement or another. So now they are confronting the issue of how right. do you govern effectively and still try to keep some of that movement and popular participation. Yeah. Um, yeah. How's it going? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, thanks, Miles. I've followed your work for for a while, um, so it's good to meet you in person. Uh, it's a great question, and um, it's 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 tough because I think there's sort of 
there are two faces to the de Blasio administration. Um, on the one hand, I think you see a lot of upside for exactly that that interchange between sort of movement organizing and and you know moving that move from uh, advocacy and grievance to governance, right? When those same people actually move into uh, positions of power, um, and I think you especially see the upside of that, you know, for example, in the response to the Muslim ban or the immigration ban, right? Uh, the mayor's office of immigrant affairs has been doing tremendous work, you know, interfacing, kind of bringing this the what the resources of the city into alliance with a lot of immigrant rights groups in uh, around the area to sort of protect constituencies. And so, and I think you see some similar things in criminal justice reform. Though I think my my friends and my colleagues in criminal justice reform would have more of a tempered view, mixed view about the administration. But I think there have been a lot of gains in that area. Um, where where I think the administration sort of stalled in that promise of uh, a movement-based, you know, moving from, going from movements to power is actually in uh, housing, zoning, and uh, sort of urban planning. Uh, so when I was in, in City Hall, the thing that struck me the most was that the bastion of the sort of technocratic expertise, hostile to stakeholder engagement or democracy or civic engagement, whatever, you know, whatever term you want to use, uh, was the city planning department. Now, um, uh, and that's, that, that's perhaps, despite or perhaps because of a, sort of this elaborate uh, mechanism that's, that you have to go through to get community approval for, for zoning changes. Um, so it, I think that's, a, uh, that's still a, a, a kind of out, a millstone around the administration's neck that, you know, with their, with their housing plan and the problem of affordability and this question about rezoning, they're really struggling, I think, to strike that balance between, um, you know, getting private developers, you know, the real estate industry to, pl- to play ball um, and sort of doing right by sort of these different uh, movement groups and, and grassroots groups that sort of were, were the mayor's base. Um, you know, I think he'll get reelected, but I think that, that split is interesting, right, that... Um, you know, housing and urban planning is to the city what, you know, healthcare was to Obama. You know, it is like it is the critical thing for most people. It is also the one where this tension between uh, technocracy and democracy, between sort of efficiency-based views and some more moral views about the good society, those tensions are at their hardest in that space. Um, so I, I think I have a bit. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag there, but it's been really productive elsewhere. And can talk more afterwards. Yves Saint-Omer, I am a senior democratic fellow here and coming from Paris. Um, I like your argument. I would like just to, to make two questions like uh, David's advocate. Mm-hmm. The first one is, uh, during decades or centuries in the Republican tradition, yeah. there was a democracy for insiders, yeah. but domination yeah. for outsiders. And I think this was true for the US, for France, for Britain. Uh, do you think that now uh, we could uh, overcome this? Uh, for example, the American way of life is not universalizable. Yeah. Uh, how can you, in, in this time of deep ecological challenge, make it possible to develop Democracy in the U.S., but not at the expense of the rest of the world. And the second question is, uh, you said that uh, the difference... Okay. (laughs) Well, Jazz, you you said that uh, the different struggles can overlap. 
but probably against uh, the global warming, the Silicon Valley could be an ally, but against tax evasion and social justice, the, the Silicon Valley is not, yeah. so. Yeah, um, both of those are great. Uh, just to take the second one first re really quickly, I'll just kind of, we can put a pin in it, but um, I, I think this is a, a big, big emerging problem for, uh, for kind of 21st, or 2017 progressivism and liberalism. Uh, there's a real risk that Silicon Valley today can be to uh, liberals today what finance was to liberals in the 90s, as in um, a space that seems like it has uh, uh, solved many of these tensions, moral tensions, in a way that's neat and clean and offers up solutions that will you know, fix all our problems. But if we don't do it right, could end up just sort of uh, uh, recreating structures of power and domination through the way technology operates. Right? Just think of Uber, um, and you know, and and think about what that means for the future of uh, economic justice in in the U.S. So, so I think that's actually a really big problem, and it's something that uh, uh, progressives will have to grapple with sooner or later. I've written a little bit about. Uh, about the gig economy and on that score, um, about the, I, 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 about sort of the imperial uh, uh, the imperial project in the U.S. Um, you know, I think you're totally right. You just said, you know, democracy inside, domination outside. Um, I think part of what's interesting to me about the the figures that I talk about in the book and that and and that I'm drawn to in today's politics is it's an attempt to move the domination from the the external other, right? Either, you know racial others or foreign, uh, kind of foreign states to what are those others within our structure who are threats to the idea of, of liberty, right? Um, for, for Brandeis, J.P. Morgan was the threat to liberty. It wasn't the barbarians at the gates. It was the financiers. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really telling, you know, powerful shift. Um, but, you know, the, the, in terms of the imperial direction and foreign policy, I think this is sort of a twin to Melissa's question about... Uh, uh, the global governance, right? It's not just economic, it has to do with military force. And, um, you know, a, a colleague friend of mine, uh, Aziz Rana, has written this great book uh, called The Two Faces of American Freedom, where he argues that um, this, uh, it's exactly this fusion of an imperial aspiration with uh, uh, a sort of uh, technocratic sort of favoring of, of economic power domestically, that, that that's what the New Deal legacy was. On, so Aziz's argument is that actually those two things go together. The sort of global imperial uh, projection, force projection, and a sort of uh, catering towards economic power domestically. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot to that. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I agree. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Chen Jingham. I'm a student at the law school, and I also know you'll be teaching at law school next semester. Yeah. So I guess yeah. I'd just like to push, like push back a little bit on this idea that um, the problem with liberalism is yeah. about the sort of like the barrier notion of yeah. technocracy, uh, like, technic, uh, like the rationalization in yeah. a technocratic state sort of suffocating individual uh, autonomy. The way I see um, like discontent in the past two and three decades, it's less as a result of sort of lack of citizen participation in an administrative state, but rather a sort of like lack of ideological alternatives on the left mm -hmm. in response to structural changes yeah. that has happened. For example, yeah. um, 
the transition from industrial economy yeah. to service economy, and also free trade, globalized finance, um, and also automation. Yeah. It just seems that those are the structural changes that empower, especially um, like the economically most powerful players. Yeah. But come at expense of um, economically less privileged and less powerful yeah. um, actors. It just seems that, to me, the problem is mostly because the left doesn't have a response to this. Yeah. It seems like the left just subscribed to this idea of neoliberalism in yeah. a very vague sense. And sort of like the left-wing parties doesn't, doesn't have as a broad of a coalition as it had in the two and three decades after the post, uh, Second World War. And it seems like the left has lost part yeah. of its electorate, basically. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it's not really paying attention to how it could have policies that create and maintain that electorate rather than just subscribing to those structural changes. And I was just wondering, yeah. in my opinion, I would like to contend that maybe citizen participation in administrative, administrative state is not necessary if we have those mm -hmm. ideological alternative, like, the policy, uh, uh, like a coherent package of policy responses to those structural changes. What we need is just for a different set of ideologies to influence those policymakers rather than having citizens participate themselves. So yeah. it's sort of like a more of a problem with the intellectuals on the left, the academic, uh, academics on the left, rather than institution per se. Because just right. from the look of it, I don't think it's an administrative state problem. It, it, seemed, like it worked fine right. in the four or five decades after the New Deal. And right, thought, right. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I take the point. I mean, no, I guess what, are those are, what do you think those problems are related? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think they're definitely related. And so I, I'd say a couple of things to that. I mean, one is that, of course, there's a bigger picture you know, here in terms of our ideas about the role of the state, uh, the nature of, uh, of the modern economy, right? And that's, that's kind of a large part of why the book and our discussion even today, right, is started with and centered on the, that big, those big themes, right? The idea of domination, the idea of democracy. Um, so I see the administrative state stuff as one place where those ideas can then start to have purchase on how we structure, how we make policy, what changes we want to push for. It's not the, it's not the be all end all, right? It's, it's not that we fix that and everything else gets fixed. It's that as part of this larger project of rebuilding a thicker um, narrative and diagnosis of our current dilemma, one way we operationalize that is in, is in the administrative state. Uh, but I think that matters because I actually think that um, this idea that we can come up with a, uh, the correct program in the abstract, right, and then, and then enact it. That, that's not how politics or people work, right? I mean, I think we, you need this, you need a, a back and forth, right, between the concrete and the big picture. And so we need to find ways to make those big ideas uh, feel real, uh, which then can feed back into the, big, the debate about what those big ideas are. Um, and you need both, so you need that back and forth. Um, then the last thing I'd say is that uh, uh, the administration. So remember before when I was talking about sort of Dewey and Brandeis, and one of their big uh, problems they're trying to overcome was this idea that if the problem is domination, and if domination is so widespread and diffused in an industrial economy, a big problem is that how do you even contest it? Right? You can't. We don't have an election for you know governor of the economy. Right? I mean, we, you know, not in any literal sense. Um, 
And so the administrative state to me was there a partial solution to that problem. It creates that lever or a lever that we can use to, ha to address these systemic questions. So um, that's what the CFPB is about. You know, that's what the EPA is about. That's what the Department of Labor is about. Now, it doesn't always, that doesn't mean that that solves the entirety of the problem. But as a de small d democratic society, it's not enough to just have the idea. We need ways to make those ideas real. Um, and that means we need institutions built by law, right, uh, through which we can then affect many of the thousands of, you know, small scale interactions that make up the economy. Um, and that's what the administrative state could offer. So it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's, it's by no means the whole, the whole story. Let me pick up on that a bit, because um, I don't think too many people, too many politicians in the uh, 30s um, campaigned on, with the slogan, the administrative state. Um, that was definitely part of the thinking of the La Follettes, the Brandeises, the, but um, they campaigned on um, break up the trusts. Yes. Yes. But that was a big idea yeah. that would presumably sort of solve many of the problems. I wonder what big ideas you have in mind. Um, and if you don't happen to have them right now, if you do have them, I'd love you to share them with some of us. Um, if you don't have them, how do you think they would come about? Because I, I think that Sabil's point that these big ideas tend to come about, my only experience with some big ideas is the feminist movement, but it came about through a back and forth between thinking and acting, thinking and acting. It, 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 it did come about through that yeah. um, interaction that, you're, that Sabil's talking about. Right. On the other hand, that doesn't mean to say that um, you might not have some good ideas on the order of antitrust that could be something one ran for office on. Do you have such an idea? Well, and if, I'm giving you the floor just to yeah. speak for a minute because uh, it would be interesting. Uh, so I guess uh, one particular example of that, it's not really my idea, it's some, okay. uh, something it in the literature that um, argued that the fact that the welfare state is not working as well yeah. when we have a service economy is because the risk in the service economy is different from the risk in the manufacturing economy. Yeah. And the welfare state is efficient if it works as an insurance market against those economic risks. So there are scholars that contend that we need a different, like sort of different format of welfare state based on the new risk um, of a service economy. For example, I think for example, uh, in the service economy, there needs a more female participation in the labor market. And then uh, the risk that can arise from that is more with elderly care and child care rather than sort of a very manufacturing-based welfare like that's more based on unemployment and yeah. sort of disruption in disability and disruption in your country. So yes. I guess that's just one example, but that's also a area that, that really interesting. No, but that, that's, a, that's a really good example, though, right? Because I think in a lot of ways um, uh, that captures sort of this, this overlap between sort of structural change, new forms of, new or modified forms of economic power, and then what, what it takes to sort of respond to those. So just kind of building on, building on that, I think there are four, four or five things that I think are front lines for looking ahead. Um, so one is this the trans transformation of the of the safety net. I, I 
frame that a little bit more broadly as uh, the changing nature of work, full stop. It's not just about the service economy or the gig economy. Um, in many ways, the, the plight of low-wage workers in the fast food sector is structurally the same as uh, the plight of Uber drivers in, in terms of you know, how they are. The, the reason that wages are low and uh, bargaining power is reduced is because uh, of the way in which the modern corporation is, is structured radically differently and the safety net sort of doesn't extend in, in the ways that it needs to extend. So that, that's kind of one front line. Uh, the other is break up the banks, um, but, I, but that is sort of, is bro again, a broader issue of uh, financialization, the way in which finance has been weaponized and uh, radically changes how investment flows, how cities operate, how uh, uh, corporations, uh, uh, the internal culture even of corporations. Um, the third would be antitrust and, and anti-monopoly. I think we're seeing a, a real revival of interest in, this, in, in that stuff. I was reading about the United uh, uh, debacle uh, um, this morning on the plane. I didn't fly United today. I flew American. Uh, but, the, but the point is it doesn't really matter because the, un the underlying story of the United issue is that our airlines are cartelized. You know, it's a cartel that is not regulated in any meaningful way anymore. Right? And that's a problem of concentrated power. Um, and then the last is uh, in, uh, uh, this idea of, of mass incarceration and immigration, and that's all about who the people really are, um, the, the, the way in which our legal structures essentially operate to, to pull huge communities out of any, any legal regime that might afford protection against risk or harm uh, because you're not part of the body politic. Um, you know, and that's where you're seeing, in these four areas, that's where you're seeing really exciting, interesting organizing. And if we can link that up to real policy levers and knit those together, then I think we're in business. Thank you. Uh, you said something about, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Daisy Arnie. I'm a student of ISUM project management. I'm an industrial engineer, but I love politics. <laughs> um, I'm from Brazil. And you said something uh, a lot about different tools. But I want your option, um, your opinion about education, how education can change. As you said before, it's the vote, the way that you vote. So how the next generation can change this actual scenario that we have today about democracy and like all this economy, like influencing, like you have all these schemes, all the movements. I can see, uh, I can be wrong, but I guess the base of any society is education. If you can change the way the, the young people, the children are thinking and to be more critical, to vote, can lead to have a big transformation in the future. It's it's my opinion to hear about you how you face education according to all this movement, like social movements, political movement for the next generations. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's great. I I, I think it's totally right. Um, I, I think I would distinguish between sort of like civic education in the broader sense, which is I think what you're getting at, as opposed to sort of education in the, in the more particular sense of what do we do about schools and schooling. Um, the, I think civic education in that, in that broader sense, that's, that's one of the things that I you know, think we want to 
when we talk about sort of narrative and, and what the uh, what are these sort of big values and um, and the kind of diagnosis of the problem, that's to me partly a matter of uh, of, of civic education in that broad sense of of helping provide a language through which we the larger public can think about the world, right? And so education as a, uh, uh, as a project of developing critical faculties, right? Whether or not that occurs in the school or not kind of doesn't matter as much. The point is, is that a democracy requires those critical faculties. And so, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Dewey is also, like, super involved in education reform. You know, not, not just because he thought schools were great, but to... You know, Dewey writes to him: "Democracy and education is, is literally the same thing. That uh, the, a democratic society is one that is pers- that is actively pursuing uh, the cultivation of those critical faculties. It doesn't matter whether it's happening in a school or in the workplace or in your uh, local kind of community club. Or it doesn't. It can happen anywhere. But the point is that that's what that's the project that we sort of engage in." And so that means sort of bringing these ideas to bear and kind of uh, sharpening that language. Um, and then that can make itself felt in the ballot box, but also in, in other forms of, uh, of civic action. Hi, I'm John McKenna. I'm a, uh, I work in the uh, China program here at the Ash Center. Um, Getting, getting back to the subject of sort of populist movements, I noticed that in the last election, it kind of seemed like the old political lines have gotten blurred. Because, for example, we had a Democratic candidate who had a foreign policy closer to, say, George Bush than to a typical liberal policy. And now we have a Republican president whose economic policies seem to hang closer to Bernie Sanders than to Ronald Reagan, for example. And... And in Congress, we're seeing that some of the biggest critics of this president come from the more conservative wings, while the liberal wings are now starting to be split between the more establishment and now more of a left-wing populist. So now there's a very strong left and right populist movements. There's left and right establishment movements. Do you think that because of what's happened that we could be seeing a potential party realignment in within the next, say, like either 20 years or maybe even in the future because of what's happened recently, and considering all the other political factors that you've mentioned. Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the million-dollar question, right? Everyone's waiting to see, you know, is, is, um, is, this the, is Trump a precursor of a, of a major party realignment, or is it a, a, a blip, right? Um, and uh, a lot of sort of uh, party scholars who, who know more about this stuff than, than I have been thinking about that. But, I, I mean, so uh, say a couple of things. I mean, Versus a minor point, I, I, I would actually disagree about the degree to which Trump is uh, similar to Sanders in the sense that um, now that they're in office, the administration's sort of policy agenda is clearly being run by the Paul Ryan wing of the party. Um, now, that's interesting because I think that has implications for your question, right? Um, to the extent that they sort of double down on a deregulation, deregulate everything kind of agenda then I don't think you're going to see uh, a kind of realignment. Um, in some ways, if you care about sort of equity and inclusion, right, the nightmare scenario would be uh, if, if there is a continuation of the way Trump campaigned. So we have, you know, you could imagine a, uh, a sort of, you can, you can think of it as a white populism, right, where it's populism but for white men. Um, and that's essentially what uh, I think 
sort of the Bannonite wing of the Republican Party is about, and that has a deep tradition in, in American politics. Like there's a, arguably even, even sort of progressive movements in the early 20th century were, pre- you know, were premised on a presumption of racial exclusion, right? Woodrow Wilson, uh, great progressive champion, you know, pretty clear believer in Jim Crow. Uh, so that's a problem. Right. That's a, that. That's a. You could build a coalition that looks like that, where you have a sort of an economic nationalism that is that sets us back many decades in terms of uh, equity and inclusion. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. I think in some ways the way we prevent that from happening is by sharpening our critique of what are those real sources of domination. Right. Um, it's not Muslims and people of color. Uh, it is very much, you know, uh, corporate concentration, finance, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, domination in the workplace, uh, mass incarceration, and sort of the, the toxic brew, right, of, um, of all of these things or, or combinations of all of these things. So, but I, so I think that's what we're hoping, we should be hoping to sort of head off. And the only way we head that off is by sort of reinvesting in that sort of broader critique, right, that all of us have been uh, talking about today. Thank you very much. We had a very wide-ranging conversation. And for those of you who want to pursue it more deeply, I think there are copies at the coop, so <laughs> thank you. And thanks, everyone. listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash.